Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. From the book of the prophet Isaiah, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today, on this third Sunday of Advent, we celebrate Gaudete Sunday. The name comes from the Latin word rejoice, which is the first word sung in the Latin Mass for this Sunday. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The introit begins. The third Sunday of Advent is devoted to the theme of joy, which is why Pope Francis calls this Sunday simply Joy Sunday. On this Sunday, we light the rose-colored candle in the Advent wreath. We sing of and hear in the scriptures about joy. Someday we might even have that rose-colored chasuble to really do it all right. So today we are about joy. We're about joy this Sunday because though Advent is the liturgical time of waiting, of expectation, of preparation, the jubilee of Christmas, the joy of the incarnation cannot be contained. It leaps forward, so to speak, such that we taste the joy that is to come. Gaudete Sunday is in anticipation of the joy to come just 14 days from today. It's like that shiver that you get or the warmth in your chest that you feel when your plane touches down and you're just moments away from being reunited with a family member, a friend, a lover. Gaudete Sunday is the liturgical moment that celebrates that involuntary surge of joy you experience when the object of your expectation draws so near. Today we are about joy. But I have to confess, it's somewhat difficult for me to think about joy this morning. And that's because today I'm acutely aware, more intensely than usual, of the deep, deep suffering of so many people around me, especially these past few weeks and months. It's the anxiety and pain and anguish of so many folks who have dearly loved ones suffering from cancer. It's the disappointment and frustration of friends whose incessant prayers just go unanswered. It's the precarity of the poor and the vulnerable during this political transition, the distress over what might be on the horizon. It's the fear and stress induced by debt that feels permanent. It's the loss of friendships, the destruction of marriages, the crumbling of families, and the seeming ubiquity of death. In short, there seems to be little joy or even a good reason for it. 
And so the sparkling letters J-O-Y that appear in every shop window and Christmas display, they seem to be only a rude mocking of the real pain that just won't go away. It's why Longfellow wrote in that sober poem, Christmas Bells, and in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So what does it mean to talk about joy in the midst of such pain? If it means dismissing or ignoring or trivializing suffering, then joy has no place in the Christian life. But what if joy is not a feeling of cheerfulness that lies beyond the experience of suffering? What if joy is the work that we do in the midst of it? I want to talk about that kind of joy this morning. Because the truth is that some of us do sense the nearness of Christ's coming. Redemption is close at hand. We sense it. The restoration of all things is already breaking into our world. It's so near. But a lot of folks feel that redemption is far, far off. The joy of Christ's coming, the freedom from sin, the liberation from pain, it all seems to be on a very distant horizon. And the present is just an empty and dry and insufferable wilderness. So what does joy mean in the wilderness? I don't know if you've noticed, but much of Advent takes place in the wilderness. Last week we heard from St. Matthew's Gospel about John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. His was, St. Matthew tells us, using the prophet Isaiah's words, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. What did you go out into the wilderness to behold? Jesus asked the crowds in our Gospel reading today. We begin morning prayer during Advent with these words from Isaiah, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The announcement of the Lord's coming reaches into the wilderness. Wilderness, it appears, is actually the presumed place where our preparation for Christ's coming occurs. And now, this morning, we hear the prophet Isaiah's words. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Isaiah here is anticipating the salvation to come, the salvation for which he and his people long. And this salvation is fundamentally characterized by joy. 
the desert shall rejoice. Its dry land will be glad. His emphatic identification of redemption with joy leads him to say with somewhat comic redundancy that the desert of this strange land will rejoice with joy. But notice the picture the prophet is painting here. The joy described is the work of the land. Humans are but onlookers in this scene. It's the earth which sings of the joy of the Lord. Even if God's people should go silent, the rocks will cry out in praise of God. This is the joy of the Lord upon the earth. And the cause of this everlasting joy is clear. This is the earth's response to God's transforming work. Isaiah goes on, For waters shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. Salvation here is the watering of the scorched earth. Later in the book of Isaiah comes that wonderful line that the church has often sung in her canticles. For as rain and snow fall from the heavens and return not again, but water the earth, bringing forth life and giving growth, seed for sowing, and bread for eating, so is the word that goes forth from my mouth. Redemption brings water and relief and life to the dry and desiccated earth. For Isaiah, for this exiled people of God who's suffering and exile in the strange land of the wilderness, salvation will come and with it joy. Indeed, Isaiah's vision is joyous. It is the joy of this wilderness of death being transformed into a garden of life and flourishing. It's the joy of sorrow and pain being transformed into singing and rejoicing. It's the joy of this life of suffering, not being destroyed, but transformed, being redeemed. The people of God in Isaiah's vision do not exit the wilderness but see it transformed before their very eyes. The wilderness becomes the joy of heaven. This is the joy manifest in Christ soon coming in the arms of his blessed mother, as well as the joy of his coming again in glory to redeem the earth and establish his rule and righteousness. For God's people in this redemption Isaiah writes, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What joy to look forward to. But what does joy mean in the wilderness? What does joy mean for our suffering? Why does joy appear so far off? Why must it wait so long? And what are we supposed to do 
in the meantime. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees, writes the prophet. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Now, in a sense, Isaiah's instructions for life in this wilderness might appear to just offer a kind of stoicism, a resignation, a grit-your-teeth kind of endurance. But what if this form of wilderness survival is not a detached, passive waiting for things to get better, an acquiescence to death, an eyes-to-the-sky posture of wishing for some other world, for some other life. What if it is what I want to call the work of joy? Joy's work in the wilderness. What is the work of joy? My old teacher, Willie Jennings, used to put it, Joy is a work of resistance. Joy is a work of resistance to despair and all its forms and all that causes it. Despair, as St. Thomas Aquinas showed, is the vice directly opposed to the virtue of hope. Despair is, in fact, a rejection of hope. Despair And all the forces of despair drive us toward death instead of life, instead of God. Despair drives us toward death, not simply physical death, but death in all its materializations, isolation and violence and debt and hate and self-loathing in all the ways in which God's good gift of life gets strangled. Despair wants to make that death final. But joy refuses to let death and sin and despair blind us from God. Another way of putting this is to say that joy is making productive use of pain. Think of all those wondrous works of art that have come out of spaces of the deepest pain. These artists put pain to work. They transform it. It's not a way of ignoring pain or trivializing it, but a way of refusing to give suffering and pain the status of God. And that is the work of joy. The transformation of pain, such that we become oriented to God even in deep suffering. This work of joy, I think, is probably best understood as learning to sing. The work of joy as resistance to despair and all its forces is learning to sing the song of joy in a strange land in the wilderness. The work of joy is song. Think of that line that question posed in Psalm 137, 
How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? This is a psalm that begins with deep, deep sorrow. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and there we wept when we remembered Zion. But it ends in joy. Happy shall they be. It's a psalm about the work of joy, the work of singing, singing the Lord's song, singing joy in a strange land. The work of joy is singing against despair, against death, against sin in all its forms. The song of joy is life-giving. It embraces pain and suffering, but refuses to be determined by them, refuses to let them veil God from us or turn us from God. And most importantly, singing joy, it's not something you do. It's something we do. Singing joy is the work of, of the church. Because sometimes you won't be able to sing. Because pain has reduced you to silence. Or the wilderness has made your mouth too dry to speak. And when that's the case, that's when the church sings joy for you. We sing the song of joy back to you when you've forgotten how it goes. What kind of song is the song of joy? In the joy of everlasting blessedness, the song of joy may very well be a hymn of jubilee, a triumphant anthem of felicity, Once once we've arrived. But in the wilderness, I think the song of joy sounds something more like the blues. What are the blues but a way of working contradiction and dissonance into a statement of pained life yet being lived well, yet being lived to God? The blues are the forging of pain into a melody, which one sings against the forces of despair. The blues are the singing of joy in a world where death seems to reign, where the joy of redemption is coming but seems far off. To sing the blues is to strengthen the weak hands, to make firm the feeble knees. It's to sing the Lord's song in a strange wilderness land in order to fend off despair and to hope for the Lord's soon redemption. The work of joy in the wilderness is learning by grace to sing the blues. The work of joy The singing of the blues is the work of the church in preparation for the redemption of the world. It is the church 
taking the pain of the world into her own hands, into her own heart, and crying out in prayer a melody which longs for our Lord's coming again. The work of the church is the work of joy. It is singing, Come, Lord Jesus, in the style of the blues. And we sing this song of joy in anticipation and longing and hoping for the Lord to come until we can finally say, on Christmas Day and on the day of our Lord's return in glory, joy to the world, the Lord has come. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.